So 1 Peter chapter 1, we will be looking at, a, 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 looking at verses 3 through 12. And before I read this, let me pray for us. Father, we rejoice in you this evening. And as we turn now to your word, your holy, inspired, inerrant word, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would show us more of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, that the result that we are humbled, that we are amazed by your grace to us, with the result that we leave here endeavoring all the more to walk in a manner worthy of this great gospel. So we commit this time to you. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels Long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The last Sunday evening service was actually seven weeks ago. Seven weeks ago. So back on the second Sunday of March, I preached on 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. I don't know about you all, but I need a refresher. So let me give us all a refresher. The Apostle Peter, he wrote this letter to Christians who lived in troubling times. He wrote to Christians like us who are out of step with an unbelieving world. He wrote to Christians like you who are swimming against the current of a non-Christian society. Why this letter? Toward the very end, in chapter 5, verse 12, Peter writes... I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 
Christian, stand firm. Stand firm in the true grace of God. Back in March, we saw that as Peter opens his letter, he greets the believers. He greets you. He greets me. And as he does so, he brings into focus the topic of identity. He brings into focus two key words that identify who you are, who I am. Who are you in relation to the world? Peter says that you are an exile. You are a foreigner. Have you ever traveled to another country? If you have, you know what that experience is like. You know what it's like to be a foreigner. Peter is saying that Christians are spiritual foreigners in this world. You could think of it this way. Your passport, if you have a passport, it says citizen of heaven. You are a spiritual foreigner. In relation to the world, you are in exile. But who are you in relation to God? Who are you in relation to God? You are his elect. This means that you belong to God. You are his. Peter wants his readers to know. He wants Christians to know that the the world may disown you, but God chose you. The world may hate you, but God loves you. The world may disparage you, but God delights in you. The world will misunderstand you, but God knows you. You are his. You are his elect. So, we saw last time that the opening two verses are divinely inspired greetings to us, to God's people, to God's elect exiles. And Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May it be multiplied to you. This brings us to verse 3. And believe it or not, verse 3 is the start of one very long sentence, at least in Greek, One very long sentence that ends with verse 12. So you could say that after tonight, I will have preached on just one sentence of God's word. It's one big, long sentence. So let's turn to it now, this divinely inspired sentence in God's word. And what are the first words out of the Apostles' pen? What are the first words? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. Is that what you would have expected? He's writing to Christians who are suffering. He wrote to Christians like us, whose faith in Jesus brings us into conflict with an unbelieving world. In the midst midst of your suffering, in other words, Peter, in a sense, is saying, here's what you need to hear first. What do you need to hear first? Even in the midst of your suffering, a doxology, a doxology, worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He turns our gaze to God. He lifts our gaze to the heavens and invites us to worship God. Why such praise? What reason do you have? What reason do we have to join Peter and God's people through the ages in praising God? And it's like Peter says, don't even get me started. Don't get me started. What reason do we have to praise God? Let me tell you. Let me tell you. The floodgates of joy burst open. And Peter finishes his sentence ten verses later. 
Blessed be God for his salvation. Let's think about this together. Blessed be God for saving you. And he, he riffs on this glorious theme. So the first section, if you will, is, is verses 3 through 5. What has God done? What has God done for you? What has he done for your soul? He has caused you to be born again. I like to think of it in this way. As a Christian, you have two birthdays. Not one, but two. You have two birthdays. The first birthday is, your, is, the, is the day of your physical birth. My birthday was recently, April 21st. So we celebrated my birthday. You may or not, uh, you know that date. You know the day of your birthday. But the other birthday, your second birthday, is the day of your spiritual birth. Now you might not know that day uh, to the day, to the month, or to the year. But God knows. He knows that day. On that day, he worked a miracle. He caused you to be born again. You were spiritually dead, but he made you alive in Christ Jesus. He brought you out of Adam and united you to Christ. He caused you to be born again. He worked a miracle. This miracle of new birth is also called regeneration. Regeneration. Let me point out what Peter does. Much could be said about regeneration. But one thing Peter makes so clear is this. Who caused you to be born again? Who caused you to be born again? He has caused us to be born again. God did. Can any of us take credit for our physical birth? I can't. I don't know about you. I can't. In the same way, we can't take any credit for our spiritual birth. We can't take any credit for the fact that we were born again. New birth is the work of God and of God alone. Did your faith cause you to be born again? No, it didn't. Your conscious act of putting faith in Christ was the immediate fruit, the fruit of what God had already done in your heart. Dead people can't choose life. Dead people can't choose life. So God did what you couldn't do. He caused you to be born again. And right away, you put your faith in Christ Jesus. God regenerated your heart and you responded in faith. Notice, notice that Peter, he, he, says, he says four things here about our new birth. And I want to look at each one briefly. So, Peter, tell us more about this new birth. What is this miracle that God has done in our hearts? Well, first he says that our new birth is, don't miss the obvious, it's according to his great mercy. According to his great mercy. We were God's enemies. We were children of wrath. We were dead in our trespasses. We were slaves to sin. How could we be born again? Only, only according to his great mercy. Peter also says that our new birth is to a living hope. A living hope. 
Just recently, I think this past week, I was reading an article in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, and the author observed that many, many people today experience a profound sense of hopelessness. Even Christians are not immune from haunting questions. Questions like, what's the point of life? Is there any payoff in the end? What really lasts? Peter reminds us, he reminds you, that you have been born again to a living hope. A hope that's living. And why is your hope living? Because you have a living Savior. Your Savior lives. And so your hope in Him lives. Your hope is living. He will never disappoint you. He will never trick you. He will never fail you. You have a living, eternally living hope. Because the tomb was empty three days later, you have a hope that will last forever. This leads to the third point that Peter says. Our new birth is to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You were reborn because Jesus was resurrected. You were reborn because Jesus was resurrected. Without a resurrection, there is no birth, no new birth. One pastor theologian put it this way. He says, like produces like. Your regeneration is the fruit of Christ's resurrection. It's the fruit. Because Jesus was raised, you too are raised in him. Because Jesus lives, so do all who are united to him. So this means that you have been born again through nothing less than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what Peter wants suffering Christians to know. Finally, Peter says in verse 4 that we have been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. A few years ago, I received a small inheritance from my grandmother. And I was in seminary at the time, so I used the money to pay for some of my tuition. Needless to say, the inheritance didn't last that long. (laughs) You have an inheritance. In Christ, you have an inheritance that's infinitely better than anything this world can offer you. Infinitely better. Your inheritance is perfectly and permanently insured against death, against evil, and against time. Your inheritance is in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. But the good news is not only that your inheritance is kept for you, Peter also says that you are kept for your inheritance. Look what he says in verse 5. This is what's true of you in Christ, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter is saying, a day is coming when your salvation will be revealed. On that day, your salvation will be revealed because your Savior will be revealed in glory. And until that day comes, what's true of you? What's true of you in Christ? You are being guarded. You are being guarded every moment of every day. You are being guarded by nothing less than the power of God through faith. Talk about assurance. 
That is assurance for God's people, for you and me. Nothing and no one can cause you to lose your inheritance. Not even yourself. Not even yourself. You are kept for your inheritance, and it is kept for you. As I reflected on this theme of inheritance, I played out an imaginary story in my mind. Some of you might be planning vacations. Uh, It's late spring. Maybe you're thinking about the summer. Imagine you're on vacation, let's say at the beach, and you find a treasure. You find a treasure. You're not sure what it's worth, so you take it somewhere to get it appraised. What's this thing worth? And the appraiser says, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. This treasure, if you could imagine all of the wealth that has ever existed in the history of mankind, <coughs> that wouldn't even come close to what this treasure is worth. That wouldn't even come close. And there you are, you hear that, your mind starts racing. Can I get insurance for this? What if I lose it? What if someone steals it? And the appraiser says, there's no need for insurance. This treasure can't be lost. It can't be taken from you. It's yours forever. You don't literally mean forever, do you? I mean, that's a really long time. A really long time. The appraiser says, don't worry. Your inheritance will go with you into all of eternity, even after you die. But that's a... That's a really long time. Will it depreciate over time? Not a chance. How could it? Your inheritance is your inheritance is God himself. Imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. Peter wants us to know that the world has no idea. Unbelievers have no idea how rich you are. No idea. No idea. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They cannot see the the richness of your inheritance in Christ. The world has no idea. You are rich beyond measure. You are an heir of the kingdom of heaven. You will one day, as we learned in Romans, you will one day inherit the earth. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. You are rich beyond measure. So what does it matter if the world doesn't like you? What does it matter? What does it matter what the world thinks? What does it matter? This is, this is the, the true grace of God. John Newton wrote in one of his hymns, Let the world deride or pity. Let the world deride me. Let the world pity me. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. We have a treasure that is unfading, imperishable, undefiled. How do we respond to such good news? How do we respond? Peter says, starting in verse 6, In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. So in this we rejoice, brothers and sisters. And yet, 
Notice where Peter goes next. Next, he introduces the hard reality of suffering. It's as though we're plummeting from a mountaintop to the valley. It's as though the major key has suddenly become a minor key. He's now talking about suffering. Suffering for the Christian. He says, starting in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why, Lord? Why these trials? Why have I suffered such grief? Why have you suffered such grief? And here in God's word is one of the answers that your Heavenly Father gives you. Here is one of the answers. You have been grieved so that... Here's the reason. Here's the purpose of our suffering. Here's why it will never be wasted. Here's why it will never be wasted. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Someone else put it this way. True faith is tested faith. True faith is tested faith. Trials test the genuineness of your faith. Fiery trials prove whether or not your faith is genuine. If your faith is genuine, it will be tested in the heat. It will be. What God in his word wants us to know is that genuine faith is so precious. It is so precious. Here Peter says that it's more precious than gold. It's more precious than the costliest material that this world has to offer us. Why? Why is it so precious? Because at the final judgment, at the final fiery judgment, the gold of this world will perish. It will perish. All of it. But your genuine faith will not. It won't perish. The tested genuineness of your faith will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed in glory and you reign with him forever. That faith is precious. As fiery trials test your faith, and they will, may this Christian's prayer be yours. I, I came across this prayer this past week. One Christian prayed, When afflictions come, which I expect in this world, may I remember that they come from you. May that understanding fully reconcile me to them. Teach me to take up my daily crosses and follow you, Jesus, with the same attitude you showed while climbing to Calvary for my sake. Help me to say, as you did, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? True faith is tested faith. True faith is tested faith. 
Peter also wants you to know that your trials do not have the first or the final word. They don't have the first or the final word. Joy transcends your grief. Rejoicing overrules your suffering. Notice, Peter begins this section by saying, in this you rejoice. And how does he end it? Let me read verses 8 and 9 once again. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter begins and ends this section on suffering by speaking of your joy. Joy. Joy is the first and final word. In this you rejoice, though now you suffer for a little while. He's not overlooking the suffering of Christians. In this you rejoice, though you now suffer for a little while. You believe in Jesus and rejoice with joy now, today. A joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Because, here's the reason, because you are obtaining today, even now, this moment in Christ, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. You, this is what you're obtaining now. Today, you experience the blessings of your future salvation. You could say, you live in a future that is already present. The future has come into the present. You are obtaining your salvation now. And that, that is reason for rejoicing, even in the midst of suffering. Peter saw Jesus. Peter saw Jesus and loved him. After the resurrection, Peter would have heard Jesus say to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Brothers and sisters, though you have not seen Jesus Christ, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And Jesus, your Savior, says that you are blessed. You are blessed. Your trials test your faith, not, an, not a faith in something abstract, Your trials test your faith in Jesus, in Jesus, your Savior, your Lord, and your God. You believe in him today, and you rejoice with joy today. In the third and final section, verses 10 through 12, Peter turns... He turns from our suffering, you could say now, to our status. And I'll explain what this means, or what I mean by that. But he turns to our privileged status as the people of God. Have you ever imagined what it was like to live at another time in history? Have you ever imagined? Has has anyone ever asked you, If you could live at another century, in another century, when would you choose to live? Maybe the 16th century in the Reformation. Maybe in the first century, the early church. 
Maybe you'd want to live in the 25th century. You're, you're thinking ahead. What would that be like? In one sense, the reason I ask that is, is, is um, this is why. In one sense, you could say that many people longed to live at this time in history. At this time. Moses, Elisha, Isaiah, Daniel. All of the Old Testament prophets longed to see the fulfillment of God's promised salvation. They were looking ahead. They were longing to see, how would God do this? The sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories, they were shadowy and unclear to them. How would God do this? We know his salvation is coming. We know his Christ is coming. What would this look like? How will God do it? How will he work this salvation? If we could only live at that time in history, what would that be like? We live in that time of fulfillment. The long-awaited Messiah has come. We read of his suffering and his glories in the pages of Scripture. The long-awaited good news of God's salvation has been fulfilled and announced to you, to me. Here's how Peter puts it. I'll read these verses again. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. From the perspective of the history of salvation, when you think about a big timeline, the timeline of God's history of salvation, Peter is saying that you, Christian, you today, have an advantage over those giants who lived in the past. All of those Old Testament prophets, you have an advantage over them because all of this has been fulfilled. But that's not all. That's not all Peter says. He says, forget about the timeline. Think about, think about the cosmos. From a cosmic perspective, you have an advantage. Who longs to look into the glories of Christ and your salvation in him? The angels. The angels. Things into which angels long to look. Your salvation is so glorious. Christ in his suffering and glories. This is so grand. This is so big. This is so wondrous that the angels long to look into it. I wonder if this is why Charles Wesley penned those lines that we just sang a few moments ago. In vain, the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Who can fathom love like this? The angels are just, the angels of all God's created beings, the angels are trying to look into the glories of this salvation, the the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all, let earth adore, let angel minds inquire no more. It has been done. It has been finished. How can it be that Jesus died for thee, for me? What Peter wants you to know, what God in his word wants you to know, 
is that the world, the unbelieving world, has no idea. No idea. No idea. This is your privileged status as the people of God. Whatever you're suffering in the midst of an unbelieving world, he's, he's, he's bringing the angels and their witness into this, into this story to say, look, this is, this is what's true of you. This is what's true of you in Christ. The world has no idea of your status. Let the world deride and pity us. Let the world deride and pity us. We have a joy. We have a treasure. We have a salvation. We have a Savior that none but Zion's children know. So how do we respond to such good news? How do we respond to such a glorious salvation, a glorious Savior? We take our cue from how this long and glorious sentence began all the way back in verse 3. How did it all begin? What's the, what's the final takeaway? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. Amen.